Well, greetings to you all from now Christ Covenant Reformed Baptist Church in Fort Worth, Texas. So it was once Faith Community and Faith Community Baptist Church together with Sovereign Joy Reformed Baptist Church have officially merged into one new congregation uh, just this uh, previous Lord's Day. So praise be to God and we're thankful now to be with you once again. I think the last time was November and I count it an honor to be with you, among you, worshiping our triune God. Um, If you are able, please open up your Bibles to Lamentations, Lamentations chapter 3. And our passage will be verses 19 through 24. Though I would like to begin by reading verses 1 through verse 24. And I hope all of you can hear me. Uh, I I have allergies (laughs) that come and go. And uh, I know we're in a gym, so I, I, I hope you can hear my voice. We'll hear now the Word of God, the infallible and the inerrant words of our God. Verse 1, I am the man who has seen affliction. By the rod of his wrath, he has led me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely he has turned his hand against me time and time again throughout the day. He has aged my flesh and my skin and broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and woe. He has set me in dark places like the dead of long ago. He has hedged me in so that I cannot get out. He has made my chain heavy even when I cry and shout. He shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. He has been to me a bear lying in wait. Like a lion in ambush, He has turned aside my ways and torn me in pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent His bow and set me up as a target for the arrow. He has caused the arrows of His quiver to pierce my loins. I have become the ridicule of all my people. Their taunting song all the day. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drink wormwood. He has also broken my teeth with gravel and covered me with ashes. You have moved my soul far from peace. I have forgotten prosperity. And I said, my strength and my hope have perished from the Lord. Remember my affliction and roaming, the wormwood and the gall. My soul still remembers and sinks within me. This I recall to my mind. Therefore, I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in Him. May the Lord bless the reading and now the preaching of His Holy Word. The title of this message is When It Seems... Your hope has perished. You know, it's been said that funerals are never the happiest of occasions. Sure, even when there's the sure and certain hope of the resurrection from the dead, I think we would all agree there's still the grief of those that are left behind. Christians don't grieve without hope, but we grieve nonetheless. But I ask you, have you ever heard 
the poems of those grieving. Have you ever listened to poems at a funeral? Have you heard grief personified or anguish described with imagery? This book of Lamentations is a collection of funeral poems. This book was written by the weeping prophet Jeremiah. And here we see through funeral poems a nation who was once a a proud monument to God's glory just now straining, trying to pick themselves up from an enormous heap of rubble. Think of it. What had long been threatened has now bursted in full fury upon the nation. Forty years of constant idolatry. Forty years of only seeking help from the princes of the world. Forty years of refusing the one true and living God. Forty years of despising their need for repentance and refusing to turn to the Lord from disobedience. Forty years. What we find in this book is not so much a description of historical fact, though that is. But we find here expressions of uncontrollable grief. And yet, and yet these expressions are not without hope. But what exactly is hope? We've heard already it's not wishful thinking. But hope has a twofold character. And we're talking here of the grace of hope. The grace of hope has one, a desire for a future good. And two, trust to obtain it. A desire for a future good and trust to obtain it. You see, the good life, the Christian life, is very much a life of a wayfarer or a pilgrim. We're just on the way. And therefore, we need hope because hope desires that future good that is found in God Himself and trusts that God will enable us to obtain it. You see, it is God who gives His people Himself in grace and it is God who gives us hope as we make our way to our heavenly home. But without the firm grasp of the end, we have to be honest, this life, even this Christian life can sometimes seem impossible, disheartening, discouraging. Especially, think of the context here, especially in the midst of a funeral. And with this in view, by summary, let's think of the first three chapters of Lamentations. Think of Lamentations 1. And if you're there, you can skim as we're contemplating the context of this chapter. Lamentations 1, we have a prophet, right? An individual writing concerning a city. How lonely sits the city. We therefore find here a funeral poem about a city. And the city is personified, if you notice there, as a woman. And there's vivid imagery here. Lady Jerusalem is one, a lonely widow. A queen reduced to a maiden. A treacherous wife betrayed by adulterous lovers. One abused and without clothing. A ritually unclean woman. The description here is graphic. And yet the description is of individuals. Lamentations 1. A funeral poem about a city. Think of Lamentations 2 briefly. The focus of chapter 1 is the funeral poem about a city and we see in chapter 2 a funeral poem about a righteous punisher. 
Again, notice this is a city of individuals. And even toward the end of chapter 118, Jeremiah speaks on behalf of these people who remain alive and says, The Lord is righteous. For I rebelled against His commandment. Hear now all peoples and behold my sorrow. My virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. The second poem expresses grief concerning who? Concerning the Lord. Because it is the Lord who brought the grief. You see, though it was the Babylonians who invaded and overcame and destroyed, it was the Lord who was at work punishing Judah. Punishing a nation of individuals for their idolatry and those who remain. Where are they left? They're left grieving. They're left in pain. The Babylonian forces led by King Nebuchadnezzar invaded for the third time. They sacked Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple, the king's palace, all the great houses and the city walls. But Jeremiah, Jeremiah had already prophesied about this. He prophesied about this judgment of the Lord in Jeremiah 36, verses 30 to 31. Listen to these words of judgment there. And notice their words of judgment on individuals. Chapter 36, verse 30, Therefore says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have no one to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat of the day and the frost of the night. I will punish him, his family, and his servants for their iniquity, and I will bring on them, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and on the men of Judah, all the doom that I have pronounced against them. But they did not heed. So in Lamentations 2, we have an individual, right? Jeremiah, grieving over a multitude of individuals, Judah. And while he acknowledges that what has come they deserve for their sin, what do we see here? He sympathizes with them. He sympathizes with the fact that those who remain are still the people of God. And what does he do then? He pleads with the Lord on their behalf. This is a funeral poem about a righteous punisher. Think now of Lamentations 3. We've observed in chapter 1 a funeral poem about a city, a city in affliction. Chapter 2, a funeral poem about a righteous punisher who has brought this affliction upon the city. In this third chapter, though, we have a funeral poem about hope. Once again, we have an individual, Jeremiah, the prophet, continuing to identify with the grief and the affliction of the people. But here the prophet is personified, notice, as the man. Imagery has shifted from the woman in chapter 1 to the man now in chapter 3. And though the imagery of this poem, as we look through, it's 60, I believe 66 verses. It goes from darkness all the way to death. And it just seems like the picture just gets worse and worse. And in verses 22 to 33, though, we find hope. We find hope. Finally, in verse 58, we read, the Lord has redeemed His life. 
my brothers and sisters, it should already be clear that these poems concern individuals. Why do I say individuals? Because these are people just like you and me. And though the suffering and anguish we observe here is due to the people's transgressions, these poems are a reminder of the excruciating anguish that characterizes life in this fallen world. Many of you have been under the exposition of Revelation. Thinking about the anguish that we experience against what? The world, the flesh, and the devil. Yes, there is victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. But the Christian life here at the same time mirrors what our Lord suffered, what our Lord faced before His resurrection. We face consequences of our sins and we face the consequences of others' sins. Though we might prefer not to remember and reflect upon the morbid depictions of suffering and pain here, we need, all of us need to be reminded what we must avoid. And what is that? Suffering due to the consequences of our sin. You see, many in the church suffer a life ravaged by sin and they're living in pain. But some are not willing to acknowledge these sins. Like many that remained alive in Judah, maybe today you're undergoing excruciating pain in your soul and you feel as if you're in a state of numbness. But it's due to your sin. Or perhaps you're present today suffering pain, but not due to your sin alone, but maybe you're thinking of the sin of another. Sins committed against you. Perhaps this is you. You're in anguish right now due to facing the world, the flesh, and the devil. But whether you're the sufferer who has sinned or the sufferer sinned against, this message is for you. Beloved, you need to believe the Word of Christ being proclaimed to you. Wherever you are in this life, this sermon, this message is for you. And this is why I must ask you, what will you do when you think or feel as if your hope is perished? What will you do when you feel as if you're walking in the dark rather than the light? What will you do? The main point of this sermon is when it seems your hope is perished, recall, the Lord is my portion Therefore, I hope in Him. And that one main point will unfold under two parts. First, when it seems your hope is perished. This is verses 19 through 20. When it seems your hope is perished. And the second part is, recall, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I hope in Him. Verses 21 to 24. Recall, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I hope in Him. So first, when it seems your hope is perished. Look at chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Again, Jeremiah cries, Remember my affliction and roaming, the wormwood and the gall, my soul still remembers and sinks within me. 
It's helpful to consider the larger picture of this third funeral poem, just for a moment. It can be broken down into two sections. First section, hope perished from the Lord. Hope perished from the Lord, verses 1 through 20. But then it takes a turn. In chapter 3, verses 21 to 66, that second half of the poem, we see hope restored in the Lord. While we don't have the time today to walk through the entire chapter, keep that big picture in mind because there's a progression in this funeral poem from darkness and death to life, to the redemption of life. Our text, verses 19 through 24, is really a small picture of that bigger picture. You could say it's a small picture of the whole book of Lamentations. Think about how it begins, verses 19 and 20, we think of hope perished. And that, that reflects the, the first few verses of chapter 1. We see a lonely city. But the one, what do we see in the second half of that passage, verses uh, 21 to 24? We see the recalling of our, of our hope, who is the Lord, our portion, who is the Lord Himself. And that reflects the last few verses of this book, chapter 5, verses 19 through 22, it goes from the lonely city and the perspective is set on the Lord and His throne. So I say that by way of introduction, just to keep that big picture in mind so we don't miss the the forest uh, for the trees that we notice here. I just want you to notice two things from verses 19 through 20. The remembering and the affliction. The remembering and the affliction. Our text begins with the word remember. This word encapsulates what all the words of anguish and sorrow and suffering have sought to express. You can put it this way. O Lord, see. We see the same kind of language in chapter 1, verse 9. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy is exalted. In chapter 1, verse 11, See, O Lord, and consider, for I am scorned. In chapter 1, verse 20, See, O Lord, that, that I am in distress. And in chapter 2, verse 20, See, O Lord, and consider, to whom have you done this? The word remember describes the vantage point of the sufferer. And it seems, it seems their hope is perished. We see here the prophet Jeremiah so identify with the people of Judah who remain alive that what could have been the words are affliction and roaming. Notice their turn to my affliction and roaming. The people's affliction and roaming are Jeremiah's affliction and roaming. And their cry to the Lord to remember is his cry to the Lord to remember. You see, the affliction and roaming have already been described earlier. They refer to the destruction of the city. It may have been through the agency of the Babylonians, but what do we notice in chapter 2? It's by the hand of Yahweh. He is the righteous punisher. Still, the grief continues as we read of in chapter 2, verses 11 through 19. We see there the description of suffering remaining with with tearing eyes and and troubled hearts, the faint of hunger roam in the city, false and deceptive visions of prophets loom throughout the entire city, receiving taunts, 
from all who pass by. Taunts from all of their enemies. And what are they told to do in chapter 2, verse 19? The Lord says, Arise! Cry out in the night, at the beginning of the watches. Pour out your heart like water before the face of the Lord. Lift your hand toward Him for the life of your young children who faint from hunger at the head of every street. And so what do the people do? They cry out. And that's what we see here in this text. In chapter 3, verse 19 and 20, we see the people crying out, Remember my affliction and roaming. And the word remember shows up a second time in chapter 3, verse 20. My soul still remembers. And how does he describe that soul? And sinks within me. The suffering has been so great that it continues to leave their hearts bowed down before it. One has said that it is the task of the Spirit to hold up the body and to turn it toward heaven. But what do we see here? What would otherwise be turned toward heaven, what would otherwise be upright, is inclined to the earth. You know, if the Spirit is bent under a weight, there is nothing for that Spirit but that the body will be entirely bowed down, prostrate. So I've been living in Texas the last couple of years and I've seen these terrible storms that come through. Maybe you've seen a tree in a storm. I've seen some really big trees in Texas. And the storm comes through and it's just for a few moments and it bends the tree downward. The rain crashes and the wind blows and what once stood strong and what once stood upright is completely bent to the ground. And that's what's being described here. This city, this, this proud monument to God's glory has been devastated. The Spirit remembers and as it remembers, it brings the whole person low. And what, what does that so, what does that Spirit say? Chapter 3, verse 18, And I said, My strength and my hope have perished from the Lord. That's how low it seems. It almost seems as if my hope is gone. Note finally here the affliction. The affliction. The affliction is described by wormwood and the gall, or we could say the bitterness, depending on your translation. What's interesting is that this is the third time these words are used. First in chapter 3, verse 5. Then in chapter 3, verse 15. And now here. And remember, the prophet Jeremiah is identifying with the people. He's making their miseries. He's making their sorrows his very own. And he says from verse 1, I am the man who has seen affliction. And in verse 5 he says that he has been surrounded with bitterness and woe. And in verse 15 he says that the Lord has filled him with bitterness and made him drink wormwood. And to drink wormwood would be to drink bitter herbs. It's often described in Scripture to describe suffering and, and bitterness and sorrow. And that's what Jeremiah says, I'm drinking as he looks upon the city. But where else do we see this language being used? This language is used in Psalm 69. A psalm of lament. 
There is one who has suffered for wrongs he has done and his enemies only make it worse. Sounds very familiar to the funeral poems and lamentations. In Psalm 69, David shows the proper response to such devastation, to such trial. In verse 21, he says, They also gave me for food, gall for food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Similar words. And it was this psalm that Christ's disciples remember when He had driven the merchants and money changers from the temple in John chapter 2. It was this psalm, Psalm 69, that the Apostle Paul applied to Jesus in Romans 15.3. Because Christ is who? Christ is the principal covenant member willing to suffer reproach for the sake of the truth. It was the words of Psalm 69, verse 21, that were taken by our Lord Himself who while suffering in body and spirit, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, what did our Lord say? I thirst. And then what happened? He received drops of a sponge filled with sour wine that were extended to Him on hyssop. And He put that wormwood to His mouth, as it were. Our Lord Jesus Christ. And in John 19.30, it reads that upon receiving the sour wine, what did our Lord Jesus Christ say? He said, it is finished. And He bowed His head and He gave up His spirit. Beloved, in Lamentations 3, verses 19-20, through 20, we find shadows of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one whom Isaiah calls the suffering servant, a man of sorrows well acquainted with grief. Christ is here foreshadowed by the city of Jerusalem. Where was our Lord often in His ministry to the point of death? He was left alone. He was despised. Our Lord Jesus Christ was rejected by men. Christ is also foreshadowed by the prophet Jeremiah. He's the weeping prophet who expresses profound grief over Jerusalem. But what do we find 600 years later? It is recorded of our Lord that as He drew near, He saw the city of Jerusalem and He wept over it saying, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. Christ is foreshadowed here coming to His people in the midst of their storm. Beloved, when it seems as if your hope is perished and you don't know what to do. Look to Christ. Christ who identifies with you. You see, Jeremiah could not atone for the sins of those who wept. Jeremiah could not save those who perished under the attacks of the Babylonians. He could not do that. But there is one. There is only one whose blood is sufficient to save you and I from our sins, to rescue you from the pit. Who is He? The Lord Jesus Christ. As you remember your afflictions, remember, recall, the Lord Jesus Christ identifies with you. You say, well, well the Lord Jesus Christ didn't sin. And no, He did not sin. But He bore the sins of His people, every one of them, and our Lord Jesus Christ was crushed for it. 
He was punished for it. Behold again then. Behold the infinite value of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. As our Baptist Catechism says, He indeed is our great High Priest who has satisfied divine justice and continually, even now, at this very moment, intercedes for you. Saints, we also find a warning here. Don't be like Jerusalem. As our Lord said hundreds of years later, if only they had known the things that make for their peace. Who was Christ referring to there? He was referring to Himself. Christ is the Prince of Peace, but what what did Judah do? Judah missed Christ and, and they missed Christ in the shadows. But it's just as easy for you and I to miss Christ in the brightness and light of His substance. We have more revelation And yet, we can so easily forget that Christ took the wormwood, that our Lord Jesus Christ took the gall, so that even as we suffer, we are not consumed. So as one Puritan said, God puts out our candles. But why does He do that? God puts out our candles that we might look up to the sun and behold more of the glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so as the prophet Isaiah asks and encourages, I ask and encourage you. Who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the servant, the voice of his servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light here? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. But perhaps there are some of you here who are listening and saying, well, how does one come to trust in the name of the Lord while they're remembering the wormwood and the gall, while they're bent so low, they're not looking up? How? How does one come to rely upon his God in the midst of of anguish. Beloved, when the storm rises and sins just seem to be piling up and your pain could be no greater, recall, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I hope in Him. I want you to note two things in verses 22 to 24. How you recall and who you recall. How you recall, verses 21 to 23. This I recall to my mind. Therefore, I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. One reformer said, the distress that was mentioned was final. An antidote to despair is administered. We see here, he says, never can faith give up. You ask, how was this called to mind? It was the grace of faith. The truths that follow here were brought back to the heart through the grace of faith. This is how you and I recall. And from where does this grace come though? Notice, the sheer compassion of our Lord. It's not the size of your faith, beloved. 
It's the simplicity of our Lord's compassion. You say, well, my faith is small. And it just might be. At times, my faith is small. But our God is not big. Our God just is who He is. Jeremiah confesses, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. How does Jeremiah recall this to mind? The grace of faith, no matter how small or how weak, we see here, confesses the Lord's mercies. This is the Lord's doing. How do you and I recall when we're bent so low to the ground? If we've been given the grace of faith, that faith will look to the Lord. Why? Because of the sheer compassion of our God. This confession is one of the most extraordinary teachings of the Old Testament. Though Israel sinned against the Lord in idolatry and immorality and oppression and other forms of covenant adultery, what do we see here? The Lord forgiving the penitent covenant member. The one who confesses their sin. Why? Because the Lord is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But you still might ask, how is that? Because there is one covenant member who is perfect covenant head. And who is He? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Here we see one of the blessings of the new covenant bestowed on those who were that they were looking, looking ahead to the promised seed of the woman. You see, Christ would later come. And He was consumed according to His humanity. Why? So that all His people would not be condemned, but receive what? Mercy upon mercy. Not just one day, day after day, and not just year after year, but forevermore. This is the reality. I ask you, do you believe this? What do we make of this mercy? One theologian writes that the goodness of God shown to those in misery is called mercy. But this mercy is no creaturely heart misery that involves one man just feeling for another and then acting upon that feeling or that movement. No, we must distinguish the mercy of a creature and the mercy of a Creator. The mercy of God. You see, mercy is in God, but it's not in God as it is in man. In fact, it is superior to mercy in man. Man is merciful because he has been caused or, or moved to mercy. But God, God just is merciful. From the plentiful fullness of His infinite goodness, our God just is merciful. Creatures get tired of showing mercy. You and I get tired of showing mercy. The one who loves you the most in this world gets tired of showing you mercy. But notice the words. Fail not. Our God is not subject to such weakness. Never cease. This will never, ever stop. You see, if it was not for the Lord who established an eternal covenant of redemption, purchased in time by the blood of the Lord Jesus, as one theologian said, it would have been all over for us. There he's taking the language of Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9. But regardless, regardless of what we may see or think or feel, that's just not the case. As our text affirms, His mercies are new, some mornings, every morning. That includes the morning of suffering. 
That includes difficult Sabbath days, evenings of, of anguish, evenings of tears and grief. But do you believe that? You say, yes, but maybe you have another reason to not believe that. Maybe you're struggling to believe that. Beloved, there is no day that lacks fresh proof of His compassion toward you. Even to this very moment. Regardless of what you feel. Not just every day though. Every moment in time. So count. Count those temporal and spiritual mercies with me. Consider this. The Lord of heaven and earth whom you have sinned against, once hated and and despised according to His good pleasure. He has saved you from the pits of eternal destruction. He has given you the gift of faith in Christ. He has washed you of your sins. He has robed you in in the perfect righteousness of His beloved Son. He has made you partaker of the divine nature. And that is not all. You have life. You have breath. You have being at this very moment. You have clothes upon your back. You have... Food in your bellies. You have a place to lay your head. You have resources of of safety and health and travel. You have family. You have friends. Not to mention, you have this communion with the saints. You have this church. You have the ordinary means of grace. And you have the resurrection to come. And that just scratches the surface of those mercies that are new every moment. Every day. And so what can we say in response to these things? Notice in our text, in a weak and creaturely way that still falls so short of the sheer wonder and glory of His being and His works, what do we say? Great is your faithfulness. But this, in the original language, this text doesn't have the copula is. Is just isn't there. So it's, it's, a, it's a response of praise in the midst of lament. Great your faithfulness. You see, all merits, all merits are excluded here. The Lord alone supplies everything promised here. The people of Judah were not going to be swept away unless the Lord Jesus foreshadowed here by the intercession of the prophet Jeremiah unless He came for us from them. You see, the people's sins could not remove the Lord's promise. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 3, verses 3-4. through He asks, For what if some from Israel did not believe? And then Paul asks, Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? And Paul says, Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. My friends, our faithfulness cannot equal God's faithfulness. The mercy we show cannot equal the mercy that He manifests to us. The faithfulness and mercy of God is properly understood under the perfection of His goodness. You see, God doesn't have goodness. He just is goodness of Himself, the measure of all goodness. As Psalm 119.68 says of God, You are good and 
do good. This means that all the goodness He communicates causes no change in God. You and I have to charge our batteries, so to speak. God doesn't have any batteries to change or to charge. God is no cup that loses what He pours out. But He is a fount. He is an ever-flowing stream of faithfulness and goodness and mercy. This is our God. So let me ask you, if He is who He is, and you are where you are, creaturely, finite, cast to and fro, susceptible to the fires of trial, the Spirit so very willing, but the flesh so very weak, if you see the Lord so faithful by the grace of faith, then who else should you seek? We've contemplated briefly how we recall. The grace of faith, which is the fruit of our God's goodness to us, lavished upon His people. Who do we recall then? When it seems your hope is perished and you don't know what to do. And it seems as if you're just walking in the dark and you're cast to the ground. Recall the confession of verse 24. The Lord is my portion, therefore I hope in Him. This confession that the Lord is my portion, it takes us all the way back to the book of Numbers. Chapter 18, verse 20. God tells the Levites there that they have no inheritance or portion in the land. But you know what He says coupled with that? He says, I am your portion. You see, the Levites had to abandon all other plans to inheritance to know that the Lord is their portion. And this is required of us. If the Lord is who we recall, to abandon all forms or ideas of inheritance, things in this world that we may be clinging tightly to, that we would almost think of being devastated by if they were taken away. You see, by this confession... The Lord is my portion. We remind ourselves that the Lord is God and our God. That He is our Creator. That He is our Redeemer who made us and saved us. And if God then is for us, well, you've heard the, you've heard the answer. Who can be against us? But since God is for us, therefore we hope in Him. You see, the Christian's hope in God is a gift of God whereby we choose the eternal good of union with who? God Himself. God is the good. There in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 17, it's better translated, you have moved my soul far from peace. I have forgotten, not prosperity, I have forgotten the good. And who is the good? God is the good. You see here in this confession, God working in us to work and to will according to His good pleasure. He works in us to bring us back to who? To Himself. This is what we confess when we say, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I hope in Him. 
Many years ago, it, it seemed for me as if my hope had perished. It seemed as if everything was being stripped away. But you know what didn't change? Amidst all those changes, the Lord. I'm sure many of you here have experienced many changes in your life, many changes that have brought great grief to your soul. But if you're in Christ, you have this great assurance that the Lord does not change. Because of who He is for me, for us in Christ, therefore we hope in Him. My unbelieving friend, you have not and will not hope in the Lord. You have not said in your soul, you are my portion. Instead, you've turned to the creature. The creature is your portion. The earth is your portion. As one medieval theologian put it, your soul's just bent toward the earth. All you're looking is down. My friend, the destruction described in the book of Lamentations, all those morbid depictions, they don't even come close to the eternal torment of the damned. You feel as if you're without hope. And it's because you are without hope. Perhaps all you're doing when you think you're hoping is just wishful thinking. Just wishing for the next good thing. You feel as if you're without hope. Come. Come. Turn, to idol, turn from idols and come and trust in the one true and living God. What in the world are you waiting for? Come. Maybe you've come Sunday after Sunday. You sat under the faithful ministry of Pastor Noah and you still remain in unbelief. Or you think because you're part of a confessional Baptist church that everything's okay. I have it all here. Therefore, I have the Lord as my portion. But that's just not the case either. Come. Come to Christ. Come and count the Lord Jesus Christ as your portion. Come and abandon all other plans all other plans you have for inheritance, maybe even those plans that are wrapped up in pretty paper that look good, that the cops or the government won't condemn, but you know in your heart that those are idols, but you're not willing to forsake them. Beloved, one day we will live in ceaseless praise, but now for the most part we live in lament. But did you know that a lament is a form of praise? Bringing our sorrow to the Lord. We have a whole Lord's Day to do so. Week after week is a form of praise. How? By it we are reminded we are not God and God is not like us. By it our vision is recorrected. Often in the midst of suffering, what what happens? Our vision gets blurry. It can become so blurry. Literally blurry because of the tears that are streaming down our eyes. But in lament, we're reminded of Lamentations 3.25. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. 
By it more and more we learn that the Lord is for us. Therefore, what else do we need? What else do you need? The Lord knows you have many temporal needs. But those can all be met. And if you don't have Him, if I don't have Him, I don't have the greatest good. I don't have the supreme good. As we read in Lamentations 3, 26 and 29, those verses there, 26 through 29 and verse 31, it is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Let him humble himself. There may yet be hope. Notice verse 31. For the Lord will not cast off forever. And it's not as if, we've already seen, it's not as if uh, in reality the Lord has cast us off. But that's how it often feels when we've sinned against the Lord. And even as we've sinned against the Lord, we've been sinned against and we face the world, the flesh, and the devil. But we have that promise. Our Lord will not cast us off forever. And so I ask you a question. A pastor asked his people hundreds of years ago, how much does it concern us all to make this portion ours? He says, may we do so? We certainly may, each of us, but how? He says, by a sincere, hearty, deliberate choice of it. He says, choose it and you will have it. Thus Mary did. Mary, he says, he quotes from her, Mary hath chosen that good part. He says, now choosing one thing implies refusing another. As the pleasures of sin are not, a merry, jovial, sensual, flesh-pleasing life is not. Merry company is not. Wine and music are not. Strong drink is not. Rioting and drunkenness, chambering and wantonness are not. Away with these then, he says. They are no portion for your soul. And the riches and honors of the world are not. Gold and silver are not. Houses and lands are not. Mammon is not. Preferment is not. Therefore, covet them not. Sit loose to them. He says, live above them. Further, our own merit and righteousness, he says, is not. It is a garment too narrow to cover us, a bed too short to stretch ourselves on. Therefore, we must deny it, not trust to it, not rely on it. What then must we take to, he asks. This is my favorite part. To Christ. And to Him only. He says, choose Him. That is, we must cordially accept of Him on the terms on which He is offered. Come to Him. He writes, roll ourselves on Him, assent and consent to His laws and government, saying, none but Christ, none but Christ, none but Christ to justify, sanctify, rule, save me, none but Christ to be my prophet, priest, and king. He concludes by saying this, it is a sign God has chosen us for His portion when we have chosen Him. And so I, I add to my question in the beginning by conclusion. When it seems your hope is perished, not just what will you do, but 
who will you choose? To whom will you turn when it seems your hope is perished and you don't know what to do? Recall, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I hope in Him. Let's bow. Our Father in Heaven, we do confess once again that we have often doubted that You are our portion. We confess that we have turned to lesser goods thinking that we have found the greatest good. Oh Lord, forgive us. Cleanse us from this unrighteousness by the merits of Christ alone. Oh Lord, we give You thanks that we have our Lord Jesus Christ, our all-sufficient prophet, priest, and king, who does instruct us perfectly, patiently, by His Word and Spirit, day by day, intercedes for us and leads us as our King and defends us against all of His and our enemies. We bless You, Father, for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we bless You for Your Holy Spirit who takes all that Christ has accomplished and applies it to our souls that we may learn when it seems as if our hope is perished, when it seems as if we have no good. Your Holy Spirit who so works effectually in our hearts that we can say in the midst of pain, in the midst of our sorrow, that You indeed are our portion because of who You are. Oh Lord, we ask for grace. Grace to lay up these truths in our heart. Grace to put them into practice in our lives. Grace to recall that You are more than enough that You are everything we need. As David said long ago, the Lord is our shepherd. We have everything we need. We thank You, O Lord, for Your Word preached. We thank You for this precious means of grace. Through Christ we pray. Amen.